0: I hope that when we conclude we will not find the subject to have been so esoteric as to not been profitable to us, but I begin where we should always begin, I trust with text from the letter to the Hebrew believers from chapter 9. I'll read several verses in order to maintain something of the context of the very phrase that that I will draw out of it. Hebrews chapter 9 and we're breaking into a rather long train of thought uh, but I, I trust this will be Uh, familiar enough to you that you will remember where this locates within the writer's uh, overall argument. Beginning at verse 8, the Holy Ghost, this signifying, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest, while as the first tabernacle was yet standing, which was a figure for the time then present, in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience, which stood only in meats and drinks and divers washings and carnal ordinances imposed on them until the time of reformation. But Christ, if we stop there, we will have said perhaps all was necessary. But Christ, being come and high priest of good things, To come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands. That is to say, not of this building. Neither by the blood of goats and cows, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. I lift from this extended context that phrase which we read a moment ago in verse 10 that is translated to us, diverse washings. <clears throat> and I set this, and again hoping it will be profitable, within the context of that unceasing controversy with our pedo-baptist friends. For we understand that in their unceasing archaeological efforts, if I may use that term, to unearth artifacts by which they may locate their offspring within the confines of the covenant, our Patobaptist baptist friends have left no stone unturned. Everything and anything that offers the hope of being friendly to their cause, they have, through the rolling centuries, called alongside in their desperate endeavors to support their assertions. Their persistence in this has certainly won for them much admiration, if for no other reason than the ingenuity of their scholastic gymnastics in which they have rivaled the ancient Jewish rabbins for the intricacy of their arguments, if not always the soundness of their interpretations. The subject before us that has just been introduced is if you will an epitome of that class of artifacts just now described and partakes of that characteristic common to the entire subset quote whatever will serve the term unquote that subject is of course one that has been mentioned already in our most recent lecture the various cleansings found in the Jewish ceremonial law, in tradition, in history. Although many of our paedo have now given up this ground as too difficult to defend, there are some, and I will say also that not so long ago it was a favored proposition with many a scholar who breathlessly embraced the notion that these Old Testament rituals, these washings, divers washings, as the writer of Hebrews described them, these rituals, if sufficiently inquired into, could yield a trove of valuable proofs for the sameness of the covenant and the inclusion of infants therein. Time Time will not permit anything like an extended exposition of all the texts related to the subject, nor do I think it necessary that we inquire at such a depth in order to a satisfactory resolution of the matter for these purposes. Thus, I propose to consider the subject under three heads, plus one which curious manner of description will, I hope, become more transparent as we go forward. I have read already the text from Hebrews and return briefly there again as our starting point. The operative phrase, as I said, is this term, diver's washings, which the writer has expressed, you'll remember in verse 9, As a figure, he said, a figure that characterized all these various ordinances of the law. I trust you will not disagree with my exegesis that the word figure is the predicate nominative to which the author refers everything that follows to the end of verse 10. That being so, some items here demand our attention. First and foremost, first and most obvious, is that whatever these washings were, whatever these washings, plural, were, they were, according to the inspired record, a figure. And only a figure. A portrait of the real, a type of the antitype that is introduced to us in those glorious and gracious words that open verse 12, but Christ. Second, and coming to the words themselves, you will perhaps find it intriguing that this word figure is a familiar word to you. The writer has named them by the inspired original parabolae. They were a parable. A parable. And you will find it in the singular. They all All of this was a parable, a teaching. All the old economy, as it related to the ceremonies, imposed on them. And that's a quote from verse 10, imposed on them. All was one great parable, a didactic narrative intended for instruction, never for perfection. The essential argument of the entire letter to the Hebrew believers is this one thing. The better covenant is the new covenant. The old covenant was a parable, if you will. And here the inimitable Dr. Owens, gives us his observation on this very text, which I think is exactly to the point. He says, The ordinances of the law and the Levitical sacrifices were weak and imperfect as unto this end. For in them and by them men were conversant wholly In carnal things. In meats. Drinks. Washings. And such like carnal observances. Which could reach no farther. Which could reach no farther. Than the sanctification of the flesh. As he evidences in the application. Of all these things. To his present argument. Verse 13, and the faith of believers is rather weakened than confirmed by all these all things of the like nature that divert their minds from immediate respect unto and total dependence on the one sacrifice of Christ. So with these parabolic washings as our backdrop, we proceed to the three heads that I have mentioned a few moments ago. That there were various washings to be met with in Israel's history, no one will deny. Whether they were circumspectly attended to by that nation at every period in their history, no one would presume to definitively affirm. But be their practice what it may, they most certainly were a part of that national and more specifically that religious system of the Jews and to this we direct our attention. First, notice that there were washings prescribed definitively by Jehovah as a part of the ceremonial legislation given to Israel. There were washings definitely and definitively described by Jehovah as a part of their ceremonial legislation. Exodus chapter 29. We find there the earliest of those references in this. And it is in relation to the preparation of Aaron and his sons to the priestly office. He says in verse 4, And Aaron and his sons thou shalt bring unto the door of the tabernacle of the congregation, and shalt wash them with water. Exodus 29.4, as I said, contains the first reference to it, and serves in a sense as the summit from which all these other washings seem to flow down, if I may use the imagery. Here the command is given that Aaron and his sons were to be washed prior to their temple service and to the offering of sacrifices. This command is then extended to every priest who serves in the temple of successive perpetual generations in Exodus chapter 30 and verse 21. We read this, so they shall Wash their hands and their feet that they die not, and it shall be a statute forever to them, even to his seed, even to him and to his seed throughout their generations. And then those procedures are further detailed in that same chapter and repeated with further detail in Leviticus chapter 16. There we read in verse four. Thus shall Aaron, I'm sorry, verse three, beginning in verse three. Thus shall Aaron come into the holy place with a young bullock for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen coat and he shall have the linen breeches upon his flesh and shall be girded with a linen girdle. And with the linen mitre shall he be attired. These are holy garments. Therefore shall he wash his flesh in water and so put them on. And again in the Levitical laws that were given we find in chapter 14 chapter 15 chapter 16 laws given by Jehovah related to various washings. Washings For those who were lepers that were cleansed. Washings for men and women with diseases or or some uncleanness. Washings for those who would come in contact with the dead. Let's let's just look briefly at some of the examples. Leviticus chapter 14 and verse 8. And he that is to be cleansed, that is the law concerning the lepers, he that is to be cleansed shall. Wash his clothes, and shave off all his hair, and wash himself in water that he may be clean. And after that, he shall come into the camp. Leviticus chapter fifteen again, more washings, verse five. And whosoever touches his bed, that is, he who has uncleanness, whosoever shall touch his bed shall wash his clothes and. Bathe himself in water and be unclean until even. Again, verse 6, same formula. Bathe himself in water and be unclean until the even. Verse 7, bathe himself in water and be unclean until the even. Verse 8, verse 10, verse 13. Again and again and again, there are these washings that were performed for various types of ritual uncleanness, ceremonial uncleanness that was contracted by an Israelite. They were to wash themselves. Now, I will note as an aside, and I think it is not an insignificant point, but it is an aside, if you will, that the translators of the Old Testament into Greek chose deliberately not to use the word immersion, baptizo, for any of these washings. They knew what it was. They were very familiar with the word. They understood its import. But they chose not to use it in any of these cases. In fact, you will not meet with that Greek word or its cognates in, in uh, verb or noun form, you will not meet with that word until you reach the prophet Isaiah in the Greek Old Testament Septuagint. An interesting aside. These were men who well understood the import of the word and they chose deliberately not to use the word in their translation for these washings. Even though our translation gives us this term again and again, bathe in water. An interesting aside. But please note, moving on from there, two surpassingly important things concerning these washings. One, their repetitive nature. Their repetitive nature. It was not simply an insignificant feature, but rather the very essence of the command given by Jehovah, that they were to be repeated. At every service in the tabernacle, the priest was to wash. At every bodily issue, at every month, at every time that leprosy was cleansed, at every contact with death, the washing must be repeated. Again and again and again. This, this I say to you, is the foundation of the author's exposition of the entire Old Covenant. You'll see that in the book of Hebrews and chapter 10. He says, For the law, having a shadow of good things to come, And not the very image of those things can never, with those sacrifices which they offered year by year, continually make the commerce thereunto perfect. For then they would not, for then would they not have ceased to be offered because that the worshippers once purged should have, should have had no more conscience of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a remembrance, again, made of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. The author's argument in these verses and in the entirety of the book is the necessity of the repetition points to its inadequacy. An unceasing, perpetual series of sacrifices, and more particular to our subject, of washings was demanded of those carnal ordinances, to use the term from our text in Hebrews 9 and verse 10. The nature of the command that established them required their frequent recurrence. There must be washings, plural, washings again and again and again because of this ceremonial uncleanness that was contracted. Because there would be a picture of the priest needing to be clean before he entered upon his priestly responsibility. They were ordained for ceremonial uncleanness. The priest, I said, was to be clean before he could minister. The defiled by disease or by issue or by contact with the dead must wash before they could participate again in the community and the ritual of Israel. They were, yes, indeed a living parable meant to teach as graphically as did the sacrifices that pollution must be cleansed. I say again that the distinguishing features of these washings are their repetition and their object, ceremonial cleansing. Please keep those two points before you. Their repetition and their object. That is ceremonial cleansing. To lose sight of either of these or both is to mistake entirely their import. This is the first, then, of those washings resulting from the command of God. Second, our second head, are those washings that were the traditions of men. We meet with these again and again in the Gospels. The gospel writers have given us a fair exposition of this entire class of washings. We find it related briefly in Matthew chapter 15, but in more detail in Mark chapter 7. This chapter begins, Then came together unto him, that is Christ, the Pharisees, and certain of the scribes, which came from Jerusalem. And when they saw some of his disciples eat with defiled, that is to say, with unwashed hands, they found fault. For, and Mark here begins somewhat of, of a parenthetical, for, The Pharisees and all the Jews, except they wash their hands off, eat not, holding the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the market, except they wash, they eat not. And many other things there be which they have received to hold as the washing of cups and pots, brazen vessels, and of tables. Then, Mark again picks up with his narrative, Then the Pharisees and scribes asked him, Why walk not thy disciples according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashing hands? You will note, especially in our Lord's response to these Pharisees, that these were none of the commands of God. God had never commanded these things in his law. They were the inventions of the Pharisees and of what Mark here calls the elders. They were displays of their outward separation from all defilements, if contact with the dead or with the unclean required washing, according to the law, then contact with any common person to the Pharisee, anyone, in fact, but the most scrupulous, that is, those of their own sect. Such contact demanded washing, according to, to the tradition of the elders because it communicated a defilement, and uncleanness from which they needed to wash externally. There is no dispute concerning the form of this washing, whether it was hands, feet, body, cups, pots, vessels. It was undoubtedly, according to the words that we find in the original, an immersion of these things. A baptism, if you will, we know from the original. But again, we press the matter as to their nature and their purpose. They were in this the same that is in their nature. They were in this the same as that which was commanded in the law. They were endlessly repeated. Recall the words of Mark. They wash oft. Was his words. They. Except they come. Except they wash. When they come from the market. They eat not. There was this. Nature of repetition. About them. Resulting from what. These religious zealots. perceived to be a contracted. Uncleanness. So again. There is this, this characteristic of repetition and this characteristic of the object related specifically to a ceremonial uncleanness that they believe themselves to have contracted as a tradition of the elders. Now, you will of course have noted that to our New Testament ordinance of baptism, I have said nothing thus far. It has been my purpose thus far to identify and to describe these divers washings, as the writer of Hebrews called them, from both the law, the command of God, and from human tradition. Having pointed our thoughts to their origins, either divine as commanded in the law, or earthly, the traditions of the elders, and to their function within the law, or according to tradition, I hope that their distinction from Christ's ordinance is, to your mind, sufficiently visible. But more will be said of that shortly. I come to my third head and perhaps most nearly connected is this one to that question of baptism, so-called, as an ordinance of Christ to his church. The question of what has come to be called Jewish proselyte baptism, a much controverted issue in days past, one that has received not much attention lately, but as I said in the beginning, one that was used in hope by our Pado baptist friends that it might once for all both bring the infant into the covenant and dismiss the arguments of the baptists. Much breath might be expended in the effort both to describe and to refute the ages-old assertion that Christian baptism is merely the offspring of this proselyte baptism, as it has been known. In brief, not a few paedobaptists and men eminent among them for learning contended their studies led to the conclusion that proselytes to the religion of the Jews were received into that religion at least as far back as the time of David by circumcision and baptism. Or in some cases by baptism alone. Startling discovery, no doubt, to your own mind. But there it is. Perhaps the most notable proponent of this position, and you may be familiar with the name, was Dr. John Lightfoot. Uh, 1602 to 1675, a renowned minister of the Church of England, a member of the Westminster Assembly, and an unsurpassed Hebrew scholar. As mentioned a moment ago, a discussion of this argument might be drawn out at length. But happily, the consideration and conclusion of it have been ably handled long ago by no less a scholar and Hebraist himself than Dr. John Gill. To his work entitled A Dissertation Concerning the Baptism of Jewish Proselytes, I would refer any of you desiring, as Solomon said, the conclusion of the whole matter. In Dr. Gill's usual exhaustive, if prolix, style, he addresses all the supposed evidence for this proposition and then proceeds to demonstrate its utter inaccuracy. After describing in detail from their own works, the arguments made in favor of it, Dr. Gill provides eight distinct refutations of their evidence with the demonstration that the practice was completely unknown until recorded in the Jewish rabbinical writings known as the Talmud not earlier than the 3rd or 4th century after Christ that being the case and it is it is more probable that the Jews adopted it from the church than that the church received it from the Jews thus he proves that however it served the Jews in the centuries after Christ as a supposed precursor to Christian baptism, it fails spectacularly. He concludes in the work, and mine is bound with Dr. Gill's body of divinity, perhaps yours is as well. He concludes, and I give you a specimen of what he has to say. After all, it is amazing that Christian baptism should be founded Upon a tradition of which there is no evidence but from the rabbins. And that very intricate, perplexed, and contradictory. And not as in being, not as in being in the times referred to. Upon a tradition of a set of men blinded and besotted and enemies to Christianity its doctrines and ordinances, and who, at other times, reckoned by these very men who, who so warmly urge this custom of theirs, the most stupid, sottish, and despicable of all men upon the face of the earth. Please tell us what you really feel, Dr. Gill. If this is the basis of infant baptism, it is built upon the sand. And will ere long fall and be no more. And he concludes with no less than a quote from Dr. Owen himself. I conclude this dissertation in the words of Dr. Owen. Of course, Dr. Owen wrote in Latin in this particular case, but he favors us with translation. Quote, that the opinion of some learned men concerning Transferring the right of Jewish baptism by the Lord Jesus, which indeed did not then exist for the for the use of His disciples, is destitute of all probability. Unquote. And continuing on Dr. Gill's own thought, and after all, perhaps the Pino Baptists will find their account. Better in consulting the baptism of the ancient heathens and its rites than that of the Jews, said to be in use before the times of Moses and in ages since, and that among all nations, and being more ancient than Christian baptism, a learned writer referred to says it is a, it is as a sort of preamble. To it, and from whom the pedo-Baptists may be supplied with materials for their purpose. So, Dr. Hill commends those uh, whom he has examined to the ancient baptismal exercises of the pagans for the source of their infant baptism more than they will find evidence of it by Jewish proselytes. Baptism. As you may have observed from Dr. Gill's final thoughts, at least a part of the intent beneath the surface of this position was to find another defense for infant baptism. His refutation should clear any doubt that proselyte baptism, if practiced at all, had no relationship to what. John the Baptist received from heaven and what Christ ordained as the lawgiver to his church. Moreover, from what has been described concerning those washings prescribed by the law or those contrived by men, I hope that it is evident whatever their parallelism may be with respect to externals, They served a wholly different form and purpose. That is, their the washing, the washings, their oft repetition, and their intent of ceremonial cleansing, mark them as parables to instruct by shadows. Quote again from our text, a figure for the time then present, unquote, and was utterly distinct from that which began in Jordan and was established as an ordinance by the head of the church. Peter, Peter in his own way, has summed up all that we have said at such length, I suppose, in a sentence. 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 21. The like figure, that is, Noah passing through with eight souls through the flood, the like figure whereunto even baptism Doth now also now save us. Not, says Peter, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh. That is this ceremonial washing with which the Jews would have been so familiar by the law and by tradition. Not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good Conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is, says Peter, an altogether original act. That is this act of Christian baptism. It is an altogether original act performed subsequent to a spiritual birth after a profession and demonstration of repentance and faith in that resurrected, reigning Christ. It is, he says, that answer of a good conscience. It was performed once only, and it is a representation, says Peter and Paul, of that new life, out of death. That is the believer's actual spiritual experience. So I have given you, I trust, the three heads. And I had promised relating to those diverse washings, a plus one. And I come in conclusion to that. There has been for protracted centuries attempts by our pedo friends to relegate for their own purposes John's baptism to something of a second-class status, either by fixing it within the Old Testament economy or by placing it in some dispensational limbo, partaking of neither Old or new covenant, but somehow unique and apart and alone. Baptists have repeatedly answered these arguments, and perhaps none better than our own champion in all things baptism, Dr. Thomas Baldwin. In 1820, his final treatise on Subjects related to baptism, unassumingly titled An Essay on the Baptism of John in Two Parts. I here offer a specimen of his reputation as well with the hope that it will set you to further contemplation of the subject. If the Christian dispensation did not commence until after the resurrection of Christ, and if it is essential to the validity of a gospel ordinance that it should have been instituted after this dispensation did commence, then the holy ordinance of the Lord's Supper cannot be vindicated as a Christian institution. This syllogism, thus drawn, presents the following dilemma, and our opponents are at liberty to choose which horn they please. Either, first, that Christian baptism was instituted before Christ's death, or second, that the supper must have been instituted afterwards to give them equal validity as Christian ordinances. The first, our opponents will not acknowledge. The second, they cannot prove. If you are able to lay your hands upon a copy of that, I would encourage you to, although took me quite some time to locate one. I hope, again, I hope that these brief thoughts have been in some way useful to set us on a firmer footing as to the fundamental distinctions between this church ordinance, that is, Christian baptism, and all that went before or all that followed after. We have the washings according to the law. We have the washings of human tradition. We have the fabrications, if I may use that word accurately, of the Jewish rabbins in relation to proselyte baptism. All, all are distinct and different and partake not of the same nature of the, of the church ordinance. I hope, as I said, these brief thoughts will have been useful to you. But if not, and clouds continue to linger, perhaps the best course is to commend you to a careful comparison of all those divers' washings that the writer of Hebrews referred to. All those divers' washings that we find in, in the Levitical text In the gospel text, in the histories of the rabbin, compare those carefully with the simple and unambiguous words of the apostle Paul in Romans in chapter six. Reading from verse four. Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death that, like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection.
1: Thank you, Brother John. Clearly, there's definitive lines drawn, distinction between all those Old Testament washings and uh, that that we call Christian baptism. That it is an ordinance we cannot uh, entertain any debate because as we read and ourselves it, Breaking bread ceremony, breaking bread, sorry, service every week, uh, every month. We read from the apostles, uh, inspired uh, form as to how we conduct ourselves in that. And of course, having provided us its form, we know that it was a firm fixture and is an ordinance of the New Testament church. Uh, there have been all manner of uses and abuses of that washing, the idea of washing over the years, uh not just with, uh, John referred to it early on in his lecture, uh not only in realms of what may be very broadly called Christianity, but also among heathen peoples, uh, it has been used. And uh, as I say, as Baptists, we, and I would strongly recommend, uh, certainly if nothing else, you hope you have read uh, the book that we ourselves produce here, Church Baldwin on Baptism. Uh, that is an absolute must for anyone who declares themselves to be back.